of course, know that. Before we hit anybody up for the ask, it's get to know them and what their life experiences with mom and dad are, you know, and not just in general or when they went to a ball game or something, but what helps them focus on the experiences they've had with the elderly and their family or their relationships, and that you have some solutions to a great deal of that. Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hi, this is Lindsay Simons, your host of Creating Community for Good podcast. And I am delighted to be sharing today what I've been learning about dialogues and high value conversations. There is a recent post on the lindsaysimonsconsulting.com website that has a list of high value questions that you can ask to engage your potential donors. And I recommend checking it out and seeing how you can create a more interesting and dynamic dialogue. As a model, today, we're going to be talking to a donor and an executive director. So this is a different type of podcast than I've done in the past, where I've got two folks who are actually in active negotiations and business with each other in the space of philanthropy, that is, where one is a donor and one is a recipient. And here, you are going to get the chance to act as though you're a fly on the wall with a nationally recognized nine-figure donor as he talks to a champion, advocate, and executive director of a nonprofit about giving motivations and priorities. All this episode was to make it a working meeting and share it with you. Our hope is that you can get insights into what a strategic conversation with a major donor and committee member and influencer looks like with an executive director who's established and highly regarded. So here what's going on is that they are talking about a capital campaign ways to engage potential donors, how to cultivate potential donors, and how to learn about giving at large with foundations, especially during a spend down, which is essentially when a donor gives away all of their funds in the foundation. Today's guests are Debbie Toth, the Executive Director of Choice and Aging, and Hank Delvati, the board member and founder of the Twanda Foundation. He's a former board member of the Thomas J. Long Foundation, which spent down over $100 million to its recipients. The Thomas J. Long Foundation was around for about 46 years, and it spent down in 2018. Their giving had exceeded $108 to over 3,000 nonprofit organizations, primarily in the Contra Costa and Alameda counties of Northern California. Their largest grant was $15 million to first five of Contra Costa and Alameda County for early education. Hank is a dynamic individual. You'll hear there's a lot of charisma, a lot of joking around. He's an active sailor. After 40 years in a career in Silicon Valley, Hank joined the Thomas J. Long Foundation as a trustee and later became the vice president. During the 12 years on the foundation, Hank regularly attended all trustee meetings and then also became the chair of the investment committee. The foundation usually granted about 200 grants per quarter, ranging from 25,000 to 100,000. In 2012, Hank led the board to strategically larger but fewer striving for greater impact per grant. This process was extremely successful, helped the foundation towards spending down the foundation entirely. 
During the past five years of the foundation's existence, they granted $79 million to about 60 nonprofits. As for Debbie, she's a powerhouse too, and she's a lot of fun. You'll hear that there is a good jive and banter between these two. They're old friends and longtime supporters. Debbie is a champion for aging. She fell in love with the aging population in high school while working with the Motion Picture and Television Fund's independent senior housing, Country House. Once enrolled at the University of California, Irvine, she commuted back on weekends to work there until she graduated from college and moved to Hungary for a few years. Debbie was pursuing a career in financial services, but missed her work and loved her elderly. Debbie joined Choice in Aging in 2002, and she worked there in various positions until she was promoted in 2012 as the CEO or the CEO, as we jokingly and lovingly refer to her. And she was then elected by the board of directors to become the president in 2017. Debbie oversees Choice and Aging's two adult day healthcare programs at Mount Diablo Center in Pleasant Hill and the Bedford Center in Antioch, as well as advocating for seniors' rights at the federal, state, and local level. In 2017, Debbie realized her dream of adding intergenerational programming at Choice and Aging when they added Choice and Learning Montessori Preschool as it was integrated into the Pleasant Hill campus. She's been honored with numerous awards for her work in advocacy, including Woman of the Year in 2015 and Susan Vanilla's. Debbie is the mother of three children and the grandmother of three cats, if you'll believe it, and a slave to two fishermen at home. She is a tireless advocate for seniors, persons with disabilities, and the underserved. Tune in to hear this dialogue as we talk about motivations, lessons learned, and even some strategies that were borrowed from past organizations that Hank has supported. Thank you and shine on. Well, based on what you said, Lindsay, I think that Debbie's just terrific as she is naturally. And it just both describing what Choice in Aging does and her enthusiasm and the commitment to the aging population, Choice in Aging, and what is offered, whether it's me or Sid or um, even, you call the people that go there, Deb, clients or? Yeah, clients or participants. Participants, yeah. One of the things that's worked actually pretty well with Las Trompas, and if you want, I can send you that link. On a monthly basis, besides the capital campaign committee members, and like I say, for the last year, it's been Zoom, but even when we were in person, they would go out, uh, Dan Haug, and you, you know Dan, and go either with the contractor or the architect or sometime the supplier to the site. And they took pictures. They took a bit. It was a, they called it a tour. And it was 30 minutes once a month. And it was meant for the donors. And about the first 15 minutes would be Dan on the site with, like I say, the contractor or whatever. And it started when they started doing the, the demolition. And they actually it started even before that way. showed pictures of the old facility. And then he held up some still pictures of it from the 70s. And then as it evolved and they did the demolition and they put the new building up. Now we, so people can see what their money went to and they yeah. can see progress from digging the hole to the, you know, the two by fours to right now, the building is about 80% finished and is it targeting for November. But the second 15 minutes of that half hour was an introduction often with Dan and one of the clients. And sometimes as you would expect, because it's a lot of autistic children and there's such a, a range of functionality. Sometimes they might be with a parent or in the case we interviewed, you've met Lisa, right? Sid's sister? Yes. Okay. Multiple so, times. So when we had, we had the interview with Lisa, it was Sid and Lisa with Dan 
And although Dan would ask the question, Sid would have to kind of lead her a little bit about what benefits did you get out of uh, Las Trumpas and what did you learn there in the kitchen or reading or playing or all that stuff. And then Dan would wrap up the half hour with a, a very nice conclusion that with the new building, I'm able to serve about 90 or 100 people instead of only about 50 people. And the things that Lisa just talked about, we'll be able to do for more people. And it really has been effective because actually Sid and I have passed on the link to that video to a number of our family and associates that generated some significant six-digit contributions, and it worked out really well. And as I mentioned that, that's one other issue that I think Sid's going to be real careful about if you, when you talk to her in person. She felt that with Las Trampas in the last year, even though she didn't attend a lot of the meetings, she squeezed some family and some business associates and some friends some more reluctant than others, and she's not ready, at least right now. You know, maybe maybe near the end of this year, maybe into 2022, she could do that again. But she collected some IOUs from some people to get them to contribute. But they did, yeah. and it's helped. Yeah. I mean, we're uh, we're like, I think we're 12, 7 out of 13 million. So it's amazing. Really, especially during COVID, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Right now, we're doing this thing with the pavers. I'm sure you might think of that one of these days. $1,000 for an eight by four paver and $3,000 for an eight by eight paver. And they've already raised enough. I mean, at $1,000 a pop, a hundred of those is a lot of money. Yeah. It's nice at the end, people will be able to put their name on it and so forth. Yeah. And that's a great strategy that we could explore for more of the public phase, like you're saying at the end. I love that. That's why we wanted to capitalize on this opportunity to say, like, what are natural questions that a donor does have? And how is the donor phrasing it rather than me phrasing it for you? Yeah. Actually hearing your words, your thinking, especially as a sophisticated donor who's been in this as in some ways as a business through the foundation for so long with your very specific strategies and guidelines and rules for how you give, when you give, where you give, and understanding your level of your point of view. I think can be really helpful for people to see like, oh, okay, that's what, that's what donors are thinking about. And that's what we need to be thinking about. So it can be a, hitting many different benefits, right? So it's benefiting the industry at large. Sure, and yeah. then hopefully it's benefiting you personally to understand some of the questions that you might have. And then even more, just it's going to benefit this organization, this project, that it's not going to be the same as what you're talking about, where you've got the client involved and you see the mission there, which is yeah. something we should definitely consider adding as well. This Absolutely. Is- I love that. So that's going on in my brain too, because our participants are back now. So we can actually have conversations with them. So I love that. Yeah. And it yeah, could be yeah. like a full on, like, you know, interviewing them, talking, you know, and, and a video component. And this is, I think we should separate those two because I think this is a yes and rather than an either or. And this can just be a, another way of training our fundraisers, our sure, volunteers. Sure. So like, this is what you might want to anticipate. I don't know if you remember from last time we talked, one of those questions was, what should we anticipate? Like, what kind of questions are our donors going to ask us? Yeah, I, you obviously do this for, for a business. And, and although, Deb, you, you have had to do a lot of this, even though the business is choice and aging. But, you know, whether it's with the foundation or even giving on a personal basis, through all of the years, both at Long Foundation, at the Tawanda Foundation, even when I was in Silicon Valley and I worked at Sun Microsystems, where I was one of the vice presidents that helped with employee matching. We had to review and validate that 
They weren't just given to themselves. <laughs> every kind of, every donor seems to have a, a different motivation and a different interest. And even you know, through the years that I sat on the, the Long Foundation, we'd go to because there's conferences for everything. We'd go to the Foundation conferences yes. and try to learn and try to understand what different motivators are for people that give or pe- even for people that ask. The interesting thing for me is the the last ten years of my career. Even though I spent the majority of my career in, in high technology and software development, I was working for a venture capital firm where there was two kids often in a garage or a basement coming up with some new piece of software, and then they'd knock on our door and want $10 million. <laughs> and the process in with 5013Cs needing money and the process of young people starting a company and needing money interestingly enough, it's not all that different. And in one case, it's almost exclusively profit motivated. And obviously the case of Deb and all other nonprofits, it's a passion to serve a a group that that has need. But they come from all walks of life. They have all kinds of motivations. They have all kinds of emotions. And I've seen them come on in in both in the foundation world and the nonprofit world, as well as in the venture capital world, where sometimes they come on very aggressive and sometimes they come on almost on their knees begging. And then it, what is really interesting, especially in the venture capital world, when you say no, I mean, I've seen, you know, grown men cry because they just put in all their blood, sweat and tears maybe for a couple of years on this idea. They've got it. It's ready to go in their mind public, but they need money. But we in the venture capital look business, will look at them and look at the competition and look at the market and realize this isn't going to work. And the hit ratio in the venture capital world is really low. It's like two or three percent. And we see thousands of good people and good software and good ideas, but we don't think it's going to work. So we don't invest. And you hope you don't miss out, you know, like two guys do something in a garage and they said they're going to allow people to search the internet. And we said, well, how are you going to make money? We, and they say they don't know. So we didn't fund them. And then they figured out a way to make like eighth of a cent on each click. And then they started Google. <laughs> yeah. Right. So back to our issue with funders, even when Sid and I hit up family, hit up professionals that we know, hit up friends, sometimes it was because of the ask. Sid or I said, this is something. And they related to our passion and our interest because Sid's sister, you haven't met her, Lindsay, has got disabilities and actually attended it in, in her younger age, uh, lost trumpet school and learned some skill sets. So because we were passionate about it, sometimes family would give because it was our passion. I'm sure that could be true with a lot of the clients at Choice and Aging. Yeah. But sometimes also those clients in Choice and Aging haven't got the funds to give much. I mean, they might not be able to afford a brick, never mind 10 or 20 or $50,000. But sometimes what we tried to do for those that we knew that had good resources is try to figure out as they make decisions, which ones they would give to why this was a better one. And and part of it is having credibility in either us or in this case with Deb, that this is a better choice than, and there's so many, you know, and I don't want to put anybody down, but if I had my last 10,000 to give, I'd rather give it to Deb than to do a food bank, for instance. But so in fairness, I think givers also like to give locally. So, you know, we have to focus on that in Contra Costa and Alameda County, even Sonoma County, and to some extent. But one thing I think that does motivate, I think you've got going for you, Deb, that we actually had a harder time at Las Trampas. Not everybody knows or has a disabled child or even has a disabled child, niece, nephew in their families. Everybody has a senior parent or two or four and have lived through it. And in in some cases, we know what we've gone through, including Sid and I have gone through with our parents and uh, friends that are going through it with their parents and so forth. So 
knowing that there is a program that gives respite to either the families or gives a place for the seniors to go as opposed to just sitting at home in front of a TV and not having any social life or productive life. I think as we on the campaign, but also as donor, other donors, as they learn about what you do, not only your passion, your enthusiasm, Deb, but that a organization like yours has a place for these seniors to go to that is probably not on anybody's bandwidth and, and they're not aware of it. And the fact that you have that is key. So we as donors want to make sure that we we have the elevator pitch and we can say it to somebody we meet in Safeway or on the street or standing in line for something uh, at the bank. So I think that would help a lot. And as Sid and I do mention what you're doing and hope that that can happen. And to some extent, although we really enjoyed your companionship on Sid's birthday, Deb, <laughs> there was a couple of people there that I was trying to put together, but Sid actually had me hold off. Yeah. And, and we need to twist her arm and push her a little bit. We got some money out of her last trumpets, I'll tell you already. So she probably knows if I bring, if I go invite her to something else, she's, I've got a, a, an agenda, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> that's kind of what we do a little bit. <laughs> We're fine with that. No, and it's not like they didn't have a blast. I mean, they had a great time too, right? I mean, it was a fun, it was a fun evening. I think everybody there was engaged and had a great time. It was a great opportunity. I don't know that I talked to all the right people. I mean, I'm learning more now, but that's okay. That's the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll do something again and include you and your husband and have fun and good food. What about the case in particular is compelling to you or is unknown to you that you'd really like to dive into more? I think I'll answer that question, but part of it is learning more. I mean, I, not so much about choice and aging because I've been there a number of times and I can even pitch a little bit about the people in a room bouncing balloons yeah. or the garden or working with the kids next door. But something that does motivate people, and this, this is a shared experience from Las Trampas, is as, and again, I think Dan did a good job on the front end of putting a brochure together with a future kind of an architectural draft of the, the building and then actually a, kind of like the architectural drawings of the first floor and the second floor and classrooms and offices. That something tangible like that made it feel more real rather than just choice and age. You know, oh, I could give them next year because they're always going to be around. But this was like, if we, we could get a donor to give and you have this brochure, they could see this real thing and it'll be realized in maybe 15, 18 months, 24 months and so forth. I think those kinds of things help. And I think Deb understands this, but even when we would make decisions on, even for the food bank or other things that the Long Foundation, we'd have an all-day meeting for the trustees once a quarter. And one of the things we always asked is, who else is giving? And what we began to learn, and I, we need to learn this for our capital campaign, is for those that have confidence in the mission or in Deb about what you're doing, and we'll just, because you've got an idea, and you know, so we'll give at the front end so you can get started. Others like to see progress and they'll want to contribute to see, well, how their contribution, you know, helped the progress along and so forth. And then, of course, there's always a handful that want to be almost at the very end of it to put you over the top. And to some extent, those are the ones that also want credit for things. And that's okay. So, you know, you do, you do what you got to do to collect it all. Actually, just last week, we were at the, the capital campaign meeting for, for Las Trampas, and there is uh, there's somebody that said they wanted to give, but they wouldn't give to the building and they wouldn't give to labor, but they would give to stuff. You know, so you just got to figure out what stuff is. Well, 
Yeah. Guess what? We need desks. We need some audiovisual equipment. We need a variety of stuff. So you always got to kind of figure out what people's motivations are and what will get them over the top, even though all of them are encompassed in this thing called choice and aging, or in the case of Las Trumpas, that program. So it's a matter of dialogue as we talk to these potential donors about what motivates them and what they can do. Somebody, I, I don't know, Deb, if you or, or you, Lindsay, are, are talking to them, but they, uh, the Valley Foundation, as they put a requirement on us to do some matching and so forth, and we didn't hit their target, but it was during COVID. They gave us, a, uh, I think, a quarter, a 90-day extension, and in that 90-day extension, we hit their quarter, their match, and that always helps out. But there's a few other foundations in the Bay Area that are, are in the process of winding down, because as, as we did the wind down at Las Trampas, I mean, at... Uh, Thomas Long. I think we did a pretty good job of it. And we have been interviewed by a number of, of local foundations that are thinking of doing the same thing and wanting to know what our process was and how we came to the realization that how are we going to spend down that last $140 million and to do it in like four years. And uh, it was a it was a fabulous process. And it was one that I absolutely said to Nancy Schillis, I wish that you would educate every funder. Like even if yeah. they're not doing a spend down, that a foundation could go through a process where they shut down their giving, they analyze the area, they talk to the leaders in the nonprofit areas and the different service areas and really come up with a plan based on the local need. That's a rare thing, right? It's normally like we're sitting with our board of directors in a room totally disconnected from what's happening on the ground floor and what the needs of the human beings are and talking about what's important to us and not what's needed in our community. Like it was such a beautiful thing and replicable. But I wonder, Hank, what speaks to other donors, the other aspects of choice and aging other than just the day program? Because I think that's the thing that we can show people. It's tangible. They walk in, they can see, they can feel, they can touch, and you can tell the stories, right? You saw the children singing with the people with Alzheimer's and they all were happy. And, you know, like there's so many things you can see and do, but the fact that we get people out of long-term skilled nursing facilities and find housing and adapt it and move them into it and connect them to services that we help them remain living in their homes when they have multiple chronic conditions, because we get them to doctor's appointments and we liaise and we help them find caregivers for their homes and we get rid of all of the fall risks and all the other things that we do that you can't walk in and see. Is that something that speaks to other donors? Is that something that you've encountered? Because you talked earlier about how all of us have parents who are aging or we have lived experience of other people's parents aging or whatever. We know that it's not just what's happening during the day and I need a break. It's how are we managing their medications? How are we getting to and from doctor's appointments? How are we dealing with nutrition? How are we getting our groceries? How are we engaging in activities? How are we managing the house now that we have two stories and mom can't climb the stairs anymore? Like all of the different things that are a part of aging that none of us are given a handbook on. Like this is how to manage aging, right? And and I think, you know, that aspect of how we wrap around everyone and all the aspects of independent living and look, what are the barriers to you remaining living independently? That piece of things, like how do we talk about that? How do we speak to that? And is that something that you think speaks to other donors given their experience? I think it does. And what I think has to happen is a conversation with them about their own experiences. Because in my case, as my on a throw rug, my mom slipped and fell and broke her hip which we didn't realize at the time. And then she had all the best medical treatment for it, but that was the beginning of the end, really. 
Yeah. And went down and she didn't exercise. She didn't cook. She was losing it. And it took another two years, but it was the beginning of the end. So as you talk to donors about their experiences, it might be an older aunt or an older uncle, but maybe mom and dad. And what'd you do when they couldn't uh, take care of themselves or they couldn't shop or they couldn't bathe or right. even in like in my cases, my mom started to lose it. My dad, you know, almost maybe a tough old Italian, but he said, my wife is uh, 50 years is kind of gone already, even though she's here. And it, it just broke his heart. Yeah. But yeah. he couldn't help her. He, you know, he was pretty frail himself, so he couldn't help her bathe. Or he didn't want some, he didn't want any strangers in his house, right? But he also didn't want to move out of his house. So, you know, as we talk to donors about their experiences with mom and dad or aunt and uncle and, and let them know, besides the day program, Choice and Aging has some of those services and can help with them. They can relate to that and they can relate to what it costs them individually. Because sometimes whether it's bringing in an outside service or uh, caregivers and so forth, I mean, in the blink of an eye, you can be spending three to $5,000 a month. Easily. Yeah. This is an interesting piece too that people oftentimes don't get. For adult day healthcare, they're paying a bundled rate for that day, right? So say they're paying $110 for a day of adult day healthcare. They're getting a nurse, an occupational therapist, physical therapist. They're getting a social worker. They're getting an activity director. They're getting direct care staff. So they're getting an entire medical and activities and caregiving staff. Like you pay more than that to have one single individual without any clinical training come in and help in the home. Like it's such a- Or if any of those people came to their home, that would be for one hour. Right. Or two or three, but they're not getting- Plus they get some social experiences- and they get a meal and they get picked up, you know, in the buses. And right. uh, so yeah. it's, uh, I, I think people yeah. can begin to relate to that because they're, they're very familiar with what they put out for their mother, father, grandfather right. and, and the like. Yeah. So sometimes it's a matter of, and I, both of you, of course, know that before we hit anybody up for the ask, it's get to know them and what their life experiences with mom and dad are, you know, and not just in general or when they went to a ball game or something, but what helps them focus on the experiences they've had with the elderly and their family or their relationships and that you have some solutions to a great deal of that. And Debbie, what would you say is going to be the critical difference between the current operation and the future? Why do the campaign? Why why do we really need the money? Well, first of all, <laughs> the building is falling apart. So the building was built in 1949. So we need an entirely new roof. We need an entirely new parking lot. We need entirely new windows. Like the the building is falling apart. So does it make sense to take this building that was built to be a state-of-the-art polio rehab facility for children, which we're now changed our purpose and are using it for something completely different than what it was designed for that's falling apart. No, it makes sense to, as we honored our children with polio, we should honor our elders in our community who are aging with a state-of-the-art facility, right? So there's that piece of it, but we're also going to be able to double the number of people we're serving. We're also going to be able to actually create the space and design it for frail elders and people with dementia will be able to design it for intergenerational opportunities. Montessori is one of the most greatest interventions for youth as well as people with dementia. And we can create spaces that with that are Montessori designed with independence at their core. Like this is really what we should be doing around aging. We spend a lot of money and time planning for all the different stages of development of youth. We spend very little time, if any at all, 
developing what it should look like for the last 30 years of life, right? We gained three decades of life expectancy last century, and we haven't done any planning or thought about it. And here we are. You take the experts who know how to do it. You bring in the funders who are wanting to see this vision. And together we can create a replicable model that we should be instituting everywhere because we are living longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me more about the integration with the young folks and the older folks and what is the impact and how will that be changed, if at all, with the campaign? So what was interesting to us, we didn't have some great strategic plan that we were going to bring in a preschool and do intergenerational programming. It was like the preschool next door closed and left. And there were these teachers that were amazing. And there were these students without teachers now. And what was going to happen? And our board chair said, Debbie, didn't you always want to do intergenerational programming? And I was like, yes. And he said, so just get it licensed. Just get it licensed. Okay. So we just got it licensed. But what we found a year after this coming together, because it was a process, right, of learning, trying and learning and tweaking and trying and learning and tweaking. And I brought flowers and balloons over to the teachers on their year anniversary of being employed. And they asked the students, do you know who she is? And they said, yes, she works next door with our friends. So friendships were created. And what we found in those friendships were not just that these people liked each other and loved each other and brought joy to one another because they smile when they walk in the room, their faces light up when they see each other. Like there's this whole thing, but what happened, this unintended consequence, which was a positive outcome was that it busted ageism before it could take root. So none of these children are going to grow up believing that something's wrong with aging. We live in a very ageist society where everything's wrong with aging. Every product on the market for women's faces talks about anti-aging, anti-wrinkle, anti-anti-anti, everything. If you look at the AARP billboards, they're not showing a 90-year-old who's using a walker cruising through a park. They're showing a 50-year-old playing tennis. Like everything we look at, Everything we see is really ageist and this busts it before it can take root. And it wasn't even intentional. It's one of the most beautiful unintentional consequences I've ever seen of something. And so increases opportunities for socialization, for activity, for joy, for engagement. I mean, even with our Afghani program and our Russian program, they don't speak the same language, but they're doing activities together and they're building relationships and friendships and cultural competency. Like it's just, it's so deep and it's so moving. And to be able to create spaces now where we can design them knowing that this interaction is going to happen is invaluable. And just back up one moment and frame it for me for anybody who doesn't understand the baseline of what choice and aging is and how it has the preschool connected to it. Just high level statement about the unity. So Choice and Aging is a nonprofit organization that's been around for 73 years serving a variety of different populations. Right now in the last 40 years, we've really specialized in serving frail elders. And our goal is to keep them living independently in the community or help them get out of institutions and and live in the community independently. We do a variety of things to make that happen from care management, transitions, transportation, caregiver support. But our flagship program is our adult day healthcare program. In Pleasant Hill, we have this wonderful like plot of land, four acres, and we have an adult day healthcare facility there. 
that program has the same staffing as a skilled nursing facility, but it's like a senior center. It's like a daytime activity center. So there's medical support, there's social support, and it's for people who we want to live at home and go to home at night. And there's a Russian program and there's a Farsi program and there's a late stage Alzheimer's program and there's a general program. And then we have a preschool, a Montessori preschool located next door and we do intergenerational programming. And really the net effect is that we have a place where people can come during the day, get the therapy socialization they need so they can continue living independently at home. And we have our next generation of children growing up loving on elders and they'll never be ageist. Hank, what do you think is, thank you for doing that, Debbie. As you hear her pitch, let's think about our volunteers who are trying to be embodying you and to introduce Choice and Aging in this campaign to their friends, right? Let's think about Doc Mack and he's got a potential donor. What do you want to make sure that this volunteer hears from Debbie's message? Or what would you add to Debbie's message that you think is compelling to people who are just learning about choice and aging and considering that they might invest their philanthropy there. First off, when we've said this a couple of times already, is talk to them and ask them either their experiences, their needs with their family and so forth. And almost any answer that they give you, Debbie's pitch probably answered. What what can be offered is a daycare program or just, I, I love the idea that these kids are going to grow up thinking that these people on the other side of the building are their friends, not just old people. So, I mean, that pulls it at heartstrings and that not every donor is going to be open to being their heartstrings tapped, but it's almost irresistible at some point, especially the enthusiasm and the description and even the verbiage that you use, Debbie. I mean, I'm familiar with the program. I've been there and so forth, but I mean, I can't even remember some of the the verbiage that you use, but they just were spot on. And as soon as, as soon as it came out of your mouth, they were like, yeah, that's way cool. That's a perfect description of it's it. It's as though she's done this before or something. For 19 years. <laughs> yeah, 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 what yeah. is so compelling about Debbie? Like everybody that I've talked to in Choice and Aging says, well, I didn't really have time. I didn't know I really want to do it, but Debbie tapped me and I can't say no. So what do you think it is? And Debbie, you know, just plug your ears if you're going to blush too much, but what does it that makes a compelling leader, right? Like somebody who inspires the community and inspires people to work harder, to give more, and to want to be connected. What's so critical? Well, and it is that committed. I mean, not just the 19 years, but just, I mean, even one of the first times I was over there and was walking through, she wasn't just going around and pointing out to what the Persian people or the, you know this group or what therapy was. I mean, every every employee, as well as every person that was every client that was there that they wanted it. And, and she did. She gave them a hug. She touched them, patted them on the shoulder and so forth. I mean, it's real obvious as you take a tour of the facility, but also just on Zoom just now, whatever you said, that was just spot on in regards to the totality of what Choice and Aging has to offer and the need that it fills for not just your current clients, but for society. Almost shameful that we don't have a Choice and Aging in every metropolitan area of the country, if not the world. I grew up with grandparents right. were always the old people lived with one of the aunts or uncles that had their own bedroom and smelled funny and dribbled. And there's better offerings and Choice and Aging has those for our grandparents and parents these days. Absolutely. Hank, would you be willing to share more about, you know, if this does go live, frame it for us. Like, who are you? What is the Thomas J. Long Foundation? Spend down. And then why did you designate your money to choice and aging? 
And just think about as you answer that, like, what do you want people to hear? Uh, Sid and I were on the board of trustees for the Thomas Long Foundation. She for almost 40 years, for me for about 10 years. And it has wound down and we wrapped up in 2018. So it's over and done with. And during much of those 40 years, there was a point in time when we did 400 grants a year to almost anybody in Contra Costa and Alameda County that was a legitimate 5013C. And we gave them something. It might be 20,000, 50,000. The higher end was usually 100,000. So, and the target during those years in terms of our budget, what was required about giving 5% of the corpus away. If we give this and it's a $10 million thing, who's going to give the other 5 million or how are they going to raise that? You just do more work when you're going to give a bigger check away. It was the same thing in the venture capital business. couple of guys asked for a couple of million dollars. It wasn't nearly as much work for us as somebody was asking for 20 and 30 and 50 million dollars to get their their startup going. As we did that, and we had to also prioritize what nature of nonprofits we would give to, and it turned out to be education, disability causes, and women's causes, we spent down. So the reason I'm giving you that background, Lindsay, is that our giving in the last two years, and the the big gift that we gave to Choice and Agent for the Capital Campaign is not from the Thomas Long Foundation, because it's gone and finished. And with Long's Drugs no longer in the Western states, and the Long Foundation gone, I'm not so sure it even adds to the conversation, even as we talk yeah. that we gave. So, and then what, what Sid and I did is created the found the Twanda Foundation, which is just basically our own personal giving. And we just didn't want to have a, our particular names associated with it. So back to your point, what motivates us is, is nonprofits that we have personal interest in, either the subject matter, like women's causes, like disabled causes, like seniors. And then, and again, this is, this is a direct correlation to, like I say, in the venture capital firm, there's a lot of nonprofits and maybe in the realm of the things that we like to give to, and I assume this is true for all donors, that they might like to give to disabled causes or students that drop out and so forth. But there's many nonprofits that do those kinds of thing, any subject matter that you find. And in the end, and again, this is where it relates to the venture capital firm, we saw lots of young people that often had good ideas and put good software together and and needed the, the money from the venture capital firms. But in the end, we never fund the idea and we never funded the market. We funded the, the principles, the people and confidence and trust in them. Ditto for what we do with Twanda. I mean, there's organizations that have come to us and we look at them and they're kind of doing the right thing and they get other grants and so forth. But we just talk to the individual, the lead director usually and either just don't have a sense of confidence or a sense of their passion in the particular field or that they're in. I mean, to them, it's just a job in some cases. Debbie, this isn't a job for Debbie. This is her her life. This is her passion. And I hope she's well paid because she deserves it. But frankly, you probably work for free. I I mean that because it is her passion. In some regards, it's that kind of passion, that kind of commitment uh, that and it's in the subject matter of the things we want to give to that makes us want to give. So I would think most donors would feel the same way, but it takes a little bit of their time to get to know both that particular nonprofit as well as that particular director and to hear that pitch. If you hit them cold turkey, it's like they know the ask is coming. So somehow we have to start the conversation and ask about their needs and then somewhere, you know, have them see the elevator pitch from Debbie or the brochure or or all of us learn a little bit more so we can make that same pitch. Right. Yeah, it's people give to people. Yeah, some of us are, are better at it than others. And I don't think anybody can be as good as Debbie is. And, and I'm not trying to flatter. I have no no need to do that. I have been, I've seen these three or 400 
nonprofits over the last 10 years that the Thomas Long Foundation gave to. And some of them were analytical. They were good administrators. They had good staff. They hired well. But you talk to them, you, they might have all been talking about styrofoam in the business. They just didn't have the passion and so forth. So it does take a special skill set in this field. And for donors to see that their money will be well utilized and that contributed to this capital campaign, they need to hear that elevator pitch. But it can't be the first thing we throw at them. Right. Debbie, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? I was loving that. Um, Yeah, no, and I think you're right, Hank. I think that to Lindsay's earlier question about like why give to choice and aging and why Debbie, you were having a conversation about leaders. I think for some of us, we can't help it. (laughs) It's just, I mean, this is my, this is my love. You're right. It is my job. Let's be clear. (laughs) But I think very few people have that opportunity in their life where what they find to do in their day and earn their income and be able to pay their bills actually speaks to their soul. And for me, it was that same concept that we're doing with our preschoolers where we're busting ageism before it can take root. I had that experience as a teenager working at the motion picture and television fund retirement home. Mm -hmm. And I had like 82 grandparents. And I absolutely fell in love with them. And when 9-11, you know, life happened. I went to university. I lived in Hungary. Like all these things happened. And then 9-11 happened. And I did this sort of inventory of my life. And like, if that was me having to jump out of a building and my life was flashing before my eyes, would I be okay with where I am in my life right now? And I was like, no, I am missing my oldies. And I need to get back into that work. And that's why I came back to this. And it just is so, it's so everything that speaks to me. And I know it doesn't speak to everybody, but the concepts should. There's no reason that we should be carving any humans out of what we all get as dignity and independence in our lives. Like at what age do you stop deserving that? (laughs) You know, And, and our society is built like there is a time in your life where you stop deserving that. And so even if it doesn't speak to somebody in the same way it speaks to me, like some people love children, some people love pets, some people, you know, people have different, as Hank was talking about, different passions, different things that speak to them. But just as a basic human being, we should never carve anybody out to that right to dignity. And so I think that this is a a project that should and could speak to everybody. And I agree with you. And how do you feel that you're going to actually move the needle from choice and aging in the, in the specific location to spread the rest of the world? You know, do you see this as something that can be modeled for others? Oh, yes. I mean, the intention is absolutely to be a replicable model. So we're creating the blueprint, okay? So we've been doing this for a long time. We hope others don't have to take as long as we do because we're learning all the lessons, right? So we're forging that path. We started with a strategic plan that said, if our mission includes independence and we can't guarantee people have a roof over their heads, then there's something wrong with our delivery model and we need to do better. So it started with that. And it's worked its way over the years to how do we fund it? Who do we partner with? What needs to be involved to create this opportunity where it can be in a campus setting and we can bust ageism and people can live there independently regardless of how many medical conditions they have and that their needs are met, whether it's cultural, spiritual, physical, all of those things. So we've been doing this work and we've been putting together the blueprint so that really once we're built and we're measuring those outcomes, it will be really easy to 
replicate because the blueprint for how to do it is there and the case is made for it. So that's the whole point. We don't just want to help people in Contra Costa County. We want to revolutionize how we age. Love it. And I think you will be that leader and you have what it takes to do that. And it'll be interesting to watch this journey. And I know for myself that I want to be part of the journey. I want to be watching it from the ground up. I want to be seeing what lessons are learned over time. Like what mistakes, what hiccups do we come into? How do we solve them? How do we correct them? How do we build faster, stronger, more efficiently? And how do we share that learning, that lesson and change the lives of people in Contra Costa, but across the globe as well. And that's something that motivates me. And I think that that might be motivational to others too, to be part of that that groundwork of real change making as we're entering the stage where baby boomers are in the aging time of life. And they were our largest part of society, largest percentage of population in our society for so many years, right? And now we're going to face a major crisis if we're not really considering how we're caring for them, how we're honoring them. And what a missed opportunity to not be able to glean from them and share their learnings and their joy and connect with the youth. Oh my gosh, they're treasure. They're like a treasure chest, right? I mean, and, and again, this is my passion, but you can buy a facelift, you can buy a home, you can buy a car, you can get a tummy tuck. There's so many things you can purchase. You cannot purchase life experience. That wisdom only comes with living it. And so as we age, we become these treasure troves of wisdom that can't be purchased. Like we are so missing that opportunity to open that chest and explore. And I think when we prematurely institutionalize people, we've shut the door on that opportunity. Mm. So this is a better way to do it. And I also just want to say that I think that the growing numbers are starting to make the case, not just for us, but when you look at the homeless populations that you're seeing in Contra Costa County over a four-year period, the homeless rate of seniors increased by 97%. The vast majority of those folks were first-time homeless people, first-time homeless as seniors. So we tend to think about, oh, you know, it's just people who have drug issues or just people who have mental health issues or just people like you hear just, just, just. No, that's not true. It's not true at all. And we're seeing a really frightening growing trend with senior homelessness. And I think that this, we have to do something different. And this is that something. Oh, I love that this is the model then we can learn from the taste the case study that's real time affecting real lives and all the lives that are touched by these families. And then that we can see that model grow and expand. And I think that's important to people. Just as Hank was saying, people like to support their local community and people also like to see things that can be spread and lessons learned, like you said, Debbie, to just expedite the learning. And it won't take as much time as you're dug into it. And you've really honed in and become a deep expert that is highly regarded across the country. I'm really impressed. (laughs) impressed. I'm proud of you. Yeah, it is impressive. And you are a humble woman, but you're a bold woman. And gosh, I remember when we met, you were the first to raise your hand and the first to speak up and the first to counter argue any topic that I've ever seen you in a room talking about because the critical thinking and the forward thinking and the drive and the passion, like Hank was saying, like dedication, determination, but just fire in the belly, that is compelling. And I think that is so needed in this world is that whatever your mission is, whether it's nature or it's the aging, 
having that passion, that fire, it's contagious. And people want to be around that. And that's something that we should really use to our advantage. And every organization has different advantages. One of the biggest advantages you have is the deep knowledge and the strong passion. And together, they're very compelling. And so I'm trying to pay a little more attention and get all the way through, but back to your verbiage that you used when you said life experiences, Debbie, after you said people can buy this, this, and that, and so forth. I mean, those are the kind of things that have to be edited into the elevator pitch or a clip of all this. And maybe even beyond that, maybe just quotes in a handout or a brochure from Deb. And, and even if we don't want to contribute or honor everything that you've said, Deb, just your statements make sense about your know, life experiences and some of the verbiage that you use, but it's all in the video. If you've recorded it, Lindsay, I think that's really useful because it people will relate to that, you know, in regards to, you know, their own life experiences or their own aging parents and so forth. That can be really useful. One thing, this is off the topic a little bit, but we went a little bit beyond. It might be valuable, and I don't think it'd be competitive at this point because Las Trompas is, you know, we're literally on the, the downhill slope of our, not only our development, but even our fundraising. To maybe bring Dan into one of the meetings, Dan. I would love it. Because he could share what worked for his capital campaign group. I could do a little bit, but he could do it so much better because he has, he's got the passion at Las Trompas that you have at Choice and Aging. And where we maybe, you know, Sid and I brought in, you know, XYZ person and somebody else brought in ABC person and so forth. Dan ended up meeting all of them or Zoomed with all of them. I, he's not the kind of guy that would necessarily hold back. And at this point, it's not like those ABC people have a choice to give either the choice of agent or Las Trampas. They've already given to Las Trampas. In some cases, they may have given in 2019 or even 2018. So Dan, both his enthusiasm as with yours, you know, him from a different organization, as well as sharing, because if he doesn't open up and share, you know, I'll be at the same meeting and I'll ask him about how many million dollar grants did you get versus, you know, how many 500,000 and so forth. Because we often would joke, well, ask big or go home, you know, because <laughs> they can always say no, or they can always cut the number back. You know, and we did that even with friends and relatives that we asked for. And even if it shocked them, it made them think bigger, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's time to invite Dan, but one of these months, into the future, I think it would be worthwhile. I think he'd be honored to do that. Thank you again for listening to Creating Community for Good podcast. This is a passion project of mine, and I am so thrilled to continue offering it to you. I've been teeing up a number of interviews, even though my cadence of releasing has been a bit slower. Please forgive me. But if you have an idea about a podcast that you would like to hear, reach out to me anytime. I'm listening and I'm curious. You can find me at lindsaysimonsconsulting.com. Take care and shine on. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.